Therefore, the purpose is prior to the calling, and in this case, of course, eternally prior. The purpose is none other than that which is unfolded in verse 29, as consisting in foreknowledge and predestination. Hence, we have a clear indication of order in verse 28. Number 2. We have the same in verse 29. It is not our interest now to expound the meaning of the word foreknow, nor its relation to the word predestinate. All that is necessary to note now is that there is progression of thought from foreknowledge to predestination. Here again we have an indication of order which will not allow us to reverse the elements involved. Number 3. In verses 29 and 30 we have a chain of events which find their spring in foreknowledge and their terminus in glorification. We cannot possibly reverse these two. There is not only priority and posteriority, but a particular kind of such order, namely, foreknowledge as the ultimate font and the glorification as the ultimate end. Number four, the same applies to both foreknowledge and predestination in reference to the three acts mentioned in verse 30. Foreknowledge and predestination are prior to calling, justification, and glorification, and eternally prior at that. Reversal is inconceivable. Number 5. Even within the acts mentioned in verse 30, acts which fall within the sphere of the application of redemption, and which are therefore temporal as distinguished from those of God's eternal counsel mentioned in verse 29, we are bound to discover an order of priority. Glorification cannot be prior to calling and justification. It must be posterior to both. Hence, whatever may be true as regards the order of calling and justification in relation to each other, glorification must be after both. The only question that remains, therefore, is whether calling is prior to justification or the reverse. We shall have to conclude that, since there are so many indications of intended order in this passage as a whole, the order which Paul follows in reference to calling and justification must be intended as the order of logical arrangement and progression. It would violate every relevant consideration to think otherwise. Consequently, we must infer that Romans 8.30 provides us with a broad outline of the order in the application of redemption, and that that order is calling, justification, glorification. So we have the answer to one question, which has not so far been determined, namely, that calling precedes justification in the order of the application of redemption. And we might not have thought so if we were to rely upon our own logical reasonings. The next question we may discuss is the relation of faith to justification. There is difference of judgment on this question among orthodox theologians, some holding that justification is prior, others the reverse. It must be understood that what we are dealing with now is not at all God's eternal decree to justify. That certainly is prior to faith. And if we were to call that eternal justification a misuse of terms, then such would be prior to faith just as God's purpose is always prior to every phase of the application of redemption. Furthermore, if we use the term justification as the virtual synonym of reconciliation, as it may be in Romans 5.9, then again such justification is prior to faith just as the accomplishment of redemption is always prior to the application of it. But we are not now dealing with the eternal decree to justify, nor with the basis of justification in the work once for all accomplished by Christ, but with actual justification, which falls within the orbit of the application of redemption. With reference to such justification, the scripture undoubtedly states, 
that we are justified by faith, from faith, through faith, and upon faith. See Romans 1, 17, 3, 22, also verse 26, 28, and 30, chapter 5, verse 1, Galatians 2, 16, 3, 24, and Philippians 3, 9. It would surely seem impossible to avoid the conclusion that justification is upon the event of faith or through the instrumentality of faith. God justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus, in a word, believers. And that is simply to say that faith is presupposed in justification, is the precondition of justification, not because we are justified on the ground of faith or for the reason that we are justified because of faith, but only for the reason that faith is God's appointed instrument through which he dispenses this grace. There is another reason why we should believe that faith is prior to justification. We found already that calling is prior to justification, and faith is connected with calling. It does not constitute calling, but it is the inevitable response of our heart and mind and will to the divine call. In this matter, call and response coincide. For that reason, we should expect that since calling is prior to justification, so is faith. This inference is confirmed by the express statement that we are justified by faith. We are now in a position to give the following, slightly enlarged outline of the order in the application of redemption, calling, faith, justification, glorification. If we think in scriptural terms, it is not difficult to insert another step. It is that of regeneration. It, in turn, must be prior to faith. Much controversy turns on this question, and into all the angles of that controversy we need not enter. Still further, it will not be possible in this chapter to give all the evidence establishing the priority of regeneration. A good deal of that evidence will be presented later. Suffice it at present to be reminded that as sinners we are dead in trespasses and sins. Faith is a whole-souled act of loving trust and self-commitment. Of that we are incapable until renewed by the Holy Spirit. It was to this our Lord testified when he said that no one could come unto him except it were given unto him of the Father, and except the Father draw him. John 6, 44 and 65. And again we must remember John 3, 3. Except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Surely seeing the kingdom of God is the act of faith, and if so, such faith is impossible without regeneration. Hence regeneration must be prior to faith. We can affirm then on these grounds that the order is regeneration, faith, justification. This does not settle the question as to the order in connection with calling and regeneration. Is regeneration prior to effectual calling, or is the reverse the case? There are arguments which could be pleaded in favor of the priority of regeneration. No great issue would be at stake in adopting that order, that is to say, the order, regeneration, calling, faith, justification, glorification. There is, however, one weighty consideration, a consideration that will be developed later on, namely, that in the teaching of Scripture, it is calling that is given distinct emphasis and prominence as that act of God whereby sinners are translated from darkness to light and ushered into fellowship of Christ. This feature of New Testament teaching creates the distinct impression that salvation in actual possession takes its start from an efficacious summons on the part of God, and that this summons, since it is God's summons, carries in its bosom all of the operative efficacy by which it is made effective. 
It is calling and not regeneration that possesses that character. Hence there is more to be said for the priority of calling. If then we have the following elements and in the following order, calling, regeneration, faith, justification, and glorification, we have really settled all that is of basic importance to the question. The other steps can be readily filled in and put in their proper place. Repentance is the twin sister of faith. We cannot think of the one without the other, and so repentance would be conjoined with faith. Conversion is simply another name for repentance and faith conjoined, and would therefore be enclosed in repentance and faith. Adoption would obviously come after justification. We could not think of one being adopted into the family of God without first of all being accepted by God and made an heir of eternal life. Sanctification is a process that begins, we may say, in regeneration, finds its basis in justification, and derives its energizing grace from the union with Christ, which is effected in effectual calling. Being a continuous process rather than a momentary act like calling, regeneration, justification, and adoption, it is proper that it should be placed after adoption in the order of application. Perseverance is the concomitant and complement of the sanctifying process and might conveniently be placed either before or after sanctification. With all these considerations in view, the order in the application of redemption is found to be calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. When this order is carefully weighed, we find that there is a logic which evinces and brings into clear focus the governing principle of salvation in all of its aspects, the grace of God in its sovereignty and efficacy. Salvation is of the Lord in its application as well as in its conception and accomplishment. Chapter 2 Effectual Calling In the preceding chapter it was stated that there are good reasons for believing that the application of redemption begins with God's effectual call to sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. It was admitted that considerations in favor of placing regeneration first could be pleaded and that no great issue would be at stake if that were done. The reasons for placing God's call first will become more apparent after we have set forth the biblical teaching on the subject of the effectual call. We may properly speak of a call which is not in itself effectual. This is often spoken of as the universal call of the gospel. The overtures of grace in the gospel addressed to all men without distinction are very real, and we must maintain that doctrine with all its implications for God's grace on the one hand and for man's responsibility and privilege on the other. It is not improper to refer to that universal overture as a universal call. It is highly probable that it is this call that is referred to in Matthew 22.14. Many are called, but few are chosen. And there are several texts in the Old Testament which could be appealed to in support of this conclusion. But it is very striking that in the New Testament the terms for calling, when used specifically with reference to salvation, are almost uniformly applied not to the universal call of the gospel, but to the call that ushers men into a state of salvation and is therefore effectual. There is scarcely an instance where the terms are used to designate the indiscriminate overture of grace in the gospel of Christ. Hence, the all but uniform meaning is that which is fixed by such well-known passages as Romans 8.30, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. 1 Corinthians 1.9 
God is faithful, by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son. Second Peter 1.10 Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. See also Romans 1, verse 6 and 7, and 1 Corinthians 1, 26. This is the reason why we generally speak of this calling as effectual. With scarcely an exception, the New Testament means by the words call, called, calling, nothing less than the call which is efficacious unto salvation. The Author In connection with the subject of this caption, there are particularly two things to be noted. 1. God is the Author God is faithful, by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.9 Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9 In this respect, calling is an act of God's grace and power just as regeneration, justification, and adoption are. We do not call ourselves... We do not set ourselves apart by sovereign volition any more than we regenerate, justify, or adopt ourselves. Calling is an act of God, and of God alone. This fact should make us keenly aware how dependent we are upon the sovereign grace of God in the application of redemption. If calling is the initial step in our becoming actual partakers of salvation, the fact that God is the author forcefully reminds us that the pure sovereignty of God's work of salvation is not suspended at the point of application any more than at the point of design and objective accomplishment. We may not like this doctrine, but if so, it is because we are averse to the grace of God and wish to irrigate to ourselves the prerogative that belongs to God, and we know where that disposition had its origin. Number two, it is God the Father who is the specific agent in the effectual call. This aspect of biblical teaching we are too liable to overlook. We think of the Father as the person of the Trinity who plans salvation and as the specific agent in election, and we think properly when we do so. But we fail to discern other emphasis of Scripture, and we do dishonor to the Father when we think of him simply as planning salvation and redemption. The Father is not far removed from the effectuation of that which he designed in his eternal counsel and accomplished in the death of his Son. He comes into the most intimate relation to his people in the application of redemption by being the specific and particular actor in the inception of such application. The evidence to support this is copious and conclusive. When Paul says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, Romans 8.30, it is obvious that the author of predestination is the author of the call. And in the preceding verse, the author of predestination is distinguished from the person who is called his son, whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Only of the father can it be said that he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son for the simple reason that only in respect of the father is the son the son. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, when Paul says, God is faithful, by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his son, the same inference holds because the person who calls is distinguished from the person into whose fellowship the called are ushered, and the person thus distinguished is the person who stands to the Son in the relation of Father. This can be none other than the first person of the Godhead, here designated, as frequently in the New Testament, by the personal name, God. Other passages are equally clear to this effect. See Galatians 1.15, 
Ephesians 1 verses 17 and 18, and 2 Timothy 1 9. It may also be proper in this connection to be reminded of 1 John 3 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. It is very likely that the word called means more than merely named, and refers to the effectual action of God the Father, whereby we are called to be sons of God. It is God the Father specifically and by way of eminence who calls effectually by his grace. The Nature We often fail to grasp the rich meaning of biblical terms because in common usage the same words have suffered a great deal of attrition. This is true in respect of the word call. If we are to understand the strength of this word as used in this connection, we must use the word summons. The action by which God makes his people the partakers of redemption is that of summons, and since it is God's summons, it is efficacious summons. We do not ordinarily associate with the word summons the efficacy that is requisite for compliance with that summons. A summons issued by a court does not of itself empower us to appear in court. It gives us warrant to appear, and it requires us to appear, but it does not actually bring us into court. That depends on our strength and will. Or perchance it depends on the force applied by the executive officers if we are apprehended and compelled to appear. It is wholly otherwise with God's summons. The summons is invested with the efficacy by which we are delivered to the destination intended. We are effectively ushered into the fellowship of Christ. There is something determinate about God's call. By his sovereign power and grace, it cannot fail of accomplishment. God calls the things that be not as though they were. See Romans 4.17 Coordinate with this fact of efficacy is the truth of its immutability. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Romans 11.29 Nothing clinches the argument for this feature of the call more clearly than the teaching of Romans 8 verses 28 through 30 where the call is stated to be according to God's purpose and finds its place in the center of that unbreakable chain of events which has its beginning in the divine foreknowledge and its consummation in glorification. This is just saying that the effectual call ensures perseverance because it is grounded in the security of God's purpose and grace. The call is also a high, holy, and heavenly calling. Philippians 3.14, 2 Timothy 1.9, Hebrews 3.1 It is high, holy, and heavenly in its origin and in its destiny. But it is probably the character of the calling that is particularly stressed. The life into which the people of God are ushered is one that separates them from the fellowship of this present evil world and imparts to them a character consonant with that consecration. If we find ourselves at home in the ungodliness, lust, and filth of this present world, it is because we have not been called effectually by God's grace. The called are the called of Jesus Christ, Romans 1.6, called to be his property and peculiar possession, and therefore they are called to be saints, Romans 1.7. The called must exemplify in their conduct the calling by which they have been called and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Here we have a series of considerations which presses home the obligations which are intrinsic to God's call. The sovereignty and efficacy of the call do not relax human responsibility, but rather ground and confirm that responsibility. The magnitude of the grace enhances the obligation. This is the effect of Paul's exhortation. I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you therefore to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you have been called. 
Ephesians 4.1. The Pattern When we do something with intelligence and wisdom, we do it with design and according to plan. We build a house according to the architectural blueprint. We make a suit according to pattern. How preeminently true this is of God himself. Execution with God is the perfect fulfillment of the designed plan. And that plan is his own purpose and grace given in Christ Jesus before times eternal. 2 Timothy 1.9 See also Romans 8.28 The following features of this pattern need to be noted. Number 1. It is the pattern of determinate purpose. When God calls men and women, it is not on the moment of haphazard, arbitrary, sudden decision. God's thought has been occupied with this event from times eternal. Hence the moment and all the circumstances are fixed by his own counsel and will. Number two, it is eternal. Have we sufficiently entertained the marvel that God's thought and interest and purpose have been occupied from eternity with the grace which is actually bestowed in time? We cannot think in terms of eternity. We have no eternal thought. Only God's thought possesses that attribute because he alone is eternal. When we try to think of eternity, we realize the limits of our understanding and we are reminded that eternity is incomprehensible to us. But we must think of eternity and think of it in such a way that the more we are aware of the limits of our understanding, the more enhanced becomes our appreciation of the marvel of God's eternal purpose and grace. Number three, it is in Christ the pattern is devised according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9 Under an earlier caption, emphasis was placed upon the truth that God the Father by way of eminence is the agent in the effectual call. We must not think of the Father as removed from the people of God in the application of redemption. He is the specific agent in its inception. But we must also remember that the call is never apart from Christ. Nothing advertises this more clearly than the fact that the counsel of the Father in the eternal ages with respect to the call, the conceiving, and proposing of it was not apart from Christ. The people of God are not contemplated even in the purpose of grace apart from Christ. See Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 1.4 We have here an index to the perfect harmony and conjunction of the persons of the Godhead in those operations which are embraced in the economy of salvation. It is coordination that goes back to the fountainhead of salvation. The Priority As was stated already, no great issue of theological or exegetical consequence would be at stake if regeneration were regarded as logically prior to calling. But there are reasons for thinking that calling is the first step in the application of redemption. Number one, it is calling that is represented in scripture as that act of God by which we are actually united to Christ. See 1 Corinthians 1.9 And surely union with Christ is that which unites us to the inwardly operative grace of God. Regeneration is the beginning of inwardly operative saving grace. Number two, calling is a sovereign act of God alone and we must not define it in terms of the response which is elicited in the heart and mind and will of the person called. When this is taken into account, it is more reasonable to construe regeneration as that which is wrought inwardly by God's grace in order that we may yield to God's call the appropriate and necessary response. In that case, the new birth would come after the call and prior to the response on our part. It provides the link between the call and the response on the part of the person called. Number three, 
It is not by any means likely that Paul in Romans 8.28-30, in setting forth the outlines of the order followed in the application of redemption, would begin that enumeration with an act of God which is other than the first in order. In other words, it is altogether likely that he would begin with the first just as he ends with the last. This argument is strengthened by the consideration that he traces salvation to its ultimate source in the election of God. Surely he traces the application of redemption to its beginning when he says, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And so calling would be the initial act of application. Number four. All the aspects of the application of redemption find their explanation in God's eternal purpose of grace. They are all in accordance with God's eternal purpose. But in the New Testament, particular emphasis is placed upon the fact that calling is in accordance with this eternal purpose. See Romans 8, 28-30 and 2 Timothy 1, 9. It is proper to infer that this emphasis appears for the very reason that the dependence of the whole process of application upon the eternal purpose could not be more clearly exhibited than by showing that the initial act of application proceeds from the eternal purpose of grace. For such reasons as these, there is good warrant for the conclusion that the application of redemption begins with the sovereign and efficacious summons by which the people of God are ushered into the fellowship of Christ and union with him to the end that they may be made partakers of all the grace and virtue which reside in him as Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. Chapter 3. Regeneration We have found that the application of redemption begins with an effectual call by which God the Father ushers men into the fellowship of his Son. An effectual call, however, must carry along with it the appropriate response on the part of the person called. It is God who calls, but it is not God who answers the call. It is the person to whom the call is addressed. And this response must enlist the exercise of the heart and mind and will of the person concerned. It is at this point that we are compelled to ask the question, How can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is enmity against God, and who cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, answer a call to the fellowship of Christ? Fellowship is never one-sided, it is always mutual. Hence the fellowship of Christ must involve the embrace of Christ in faith and love. And how can a person whose heart is deprived, and whose mind is enmity against God, embrace him who is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God? The answer to this question is that the believing and loving response which the calling requires is a moral and spiritual impossibility on the part of one who is dead in trespasses and sins. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8.8. And our Savior himself gives unequivocal expression to this impossibility when he says, No one can come unto me except the Father who hath sent me draw him. No one can come unto me except it were given to him of the Father. John 6:44 and 65. The fact is that there is a complete incongruity between the glory and virtue to which sinners are called on the one hand and the moral and spiritual condition of the called on the other. How is this incongruity to be resolved and the impossibility overcome? It is the glory of the gospel of God's grace that it provides for this incongruity. God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it the operative grace whereby the person called is enabled to answer the call and to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. God's grace reaches down to the lowest depths of our need and meets all the exigencies of the moral and spiritual impossibilities 
which inheres in our depravity and inability. And that grace is the grace of regeneration. It is when we take into account God's recreative power and grace that the contradiction between the call of God and the sinful condition of the called is resolved. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Ezekiel 36:26. God effects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources, a change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls the things that be not as though they were, who spake and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. There is no passage of scripture more relevant than the words of our Lord himself to Nicodemus. They are familiar words, but how frequently their most obvious meaning is ignored or distorted. The mode of regeneration is truly mysterious, and to this Jesus points in this passage when he says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it came, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 But there are plain lessons respecting the necessity and the character of the new birth which lie on the face of Jesus' teaching here. When our Lord says that the supernatural birth spoken of is indispensable to seeing and entering into the kingdom of God, he surely means by seeing the spiritual discernment of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 2.14, and by entering into, he refers to that by which we become actual members of the kingdom of God, and therefore partakers of the blessing which membership entails. We may focus attention upon verse 5, except one be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A good deal of difference of judgment has turned on the question, what did Jesus mean by water in this text? Some think Jesus referred to Christian baptism as the labor of regeneration, and those who believe in baptismal regeneration like to appeal to this text in support of that doctrine. At the outset it should be noted that Jesus does not say baptism, he says water. We must not take it for granted that he means baptism unless there is some compelling reason for thinking that in using the word water he must have been referring to the water of baptism. But there is no need to regard the word water in this text as referring to the rite of baptism, and there are good reasons for thinking that it has another import in reference. We should keep in view the situation in which Jesus spoke these words. He was engaged in a dialogue with Nicodemus on an intensely religious question. In terms of this conversation, nothing is more reasonable and natural than to suppose that Jesus wanted to convey to Nicodemus an idea of religious import which would be directly relevant to the subject of interest. Now what religious idea would we expect to be conveyed to the mind of Nicodemus by the use of the word water? Of course, the idea associated with the religious use of water in that religious tradition and practice which provided the very context of Nicodemus' life and profession. And that is just saying the religious import of water in the Old Testament, in the rites of Judaism, and in contemporary practice. When we say this, there is one answer. The religious use of water, that is to say, the religiously symbolic meaning of water, pointed in one direction, and that direction is purification. All the relevant considerations would conspire to convey to Nicodemus that message. And that message would be focused in his mind in one central thought, the indispensable necessity of purification for entrance into the kingdom of God. 
It was characteristic of Jesus' teaching to lay his finger directly upon the characteristic sin and need of those with whom he was dealing. The characteristic sin of the Pharisees was self-complacency and self-righteousness. What they needed was to be convinced of their own pollution and the need of radical purification. It is this lesson that the expression born of water would have conveyed most effectively. Entrance into the kingdom of God could only be secured by purification from the defilement of sin. The water of purification is, as it were, the womb out of which must emerge that new life which gives entrance into and fits for membership in the kingdom of God. This is the purifying aspect of regeneration. Regeneration must negate the past as well as reconstitute for the future. It must cleanse from sin as well as recreate in righteousness. There can be no question but born of the Spirit refers to birth of the Holy Spirit. See verse 8 and John 1, 13, 1 John 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verses 1, 4, and 18. It is birth, therefore, of divine and supernatural character, and it is such because the Holy Spirit is the source and agent of it. It needs to be particularly noted what is implied in this familiar expression, born of the Spirit. It is not quite certain whether the exact meaning of the word rendered born is that of begetting or bearing. According to the usage of the New Testament, it could be either. If it is the former, then the thought is patterned after the action of the Father in human procreation. The man begets. If it is the latter, then the thought is patterned after the action of the mother. The woman bears. The child is born of the mother. We cannot be certain which of these more precise meanings is in view here. But it makes no essential difference to the truth expressed. Whether we think of being begotten of the Spirit or of being born of the Spirit, one thing is certain. We are instructed by our Lord that for entrance into the kingdom of God we are wholly dependent upon the action of the Holy Spirit, an action of the Holy Spirit which is compared to that on the part of our parents by which we were born into the world. We are as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as we are upon the action of our parents in connection with our natural birth. We were not begotten by our father because we decided to be, and we were not born of our mother because we decided to be. We were simply begotten and we were born. We did not decide to be born. This is the simple but too frequently overlooked truth which our Lord here teaches us. We do not have spiritual perception of the kingdom of God, nor do we enter into it because we willed to or decided to. If this privilege is ours, it is because the Holy Spirit willed it, and here all rests upon the Holy Spirit's decision and action. He begets or bears when and where he pleases. Is this not the burden of verse 8? Jesus there compares the action of the Spirit to the action of the wind. The wind blows. This serves to illustrate the factuality, the certainty, the efficacy of the Spirit's action. The wind blows where it wills. This enforces the sovereignty of the Spirit's action. The wind is not at our beck and call. Neither is the regenerative operation of the Spirit. Thou canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. The Spirit's work is mysterious. All points up the sovereignty, efficacy, and inscrutability of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. It is the Holy Spirit who effects this change. He effects it because he is the source of it. He effects it by the mode of generation. And since he effects it by this mode, he is the sole author and active agent. It has often been said that we are passive in regeneration. 
this is a true and proper statement, for it is simply the precipitate of what our Lord has taught us here. We may not like it, we may recoil against it, it may not fit into our way of thinking, and it may not accord with the time-worn expressions which are the coin of our evangelism. But if we recoil against it, we do well to remember that this recoil is recoil against Christ. And what shall we answer when we appear before him whose truth we rejected, and with whose gospel we tampered? But blessed be God that the gospel of Christ is one of sovereign, efficacious, irresistible regeneration. If it were not the case that in regeneration we are passive, the subjects of an action of which God alone is the agent, there would be no gospel at all. For unless God by sovereign, operative grace, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. John 3.5 sets forth the two aspects from which the new birth must be viewed. It purges away the defilement of our hearts, and it recreates a newness of life. The two elements of this text, born of water and born of the Spirit, correspond to the two elements of the Old Testament counterpart. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36:25 and 26 this passage we may properly regard as the Old Testament parallel of John 3.5, and there is neither reason nor warrant for placing any other interpretation upon born of water than that of Ezekiel 36.25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. These elements, that of purifying and renovating, must not be regarded as inseparable events. They are simply the aspects which are constitutive of this total change by which the called of God are translated from death to life and from the kingdom of Satan into God's kingdom, a change which provides for all the exigencies of our past condition and the demands of the new life in Christ, a change which removes the contradiction of sin and fits for the fellowship of God's Son. It was the Apostle John who recorded for us our Lord's discourse to Nicodemus. John had learned its lesson well, and particularly the lesson that regeneration is the act of God and of God alone, that men are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 He has inscribed this teaching indelibly upon his first epistle also. Explicit reference to regeneration appears in that epistle on several occasions. 1 John 2.29, 3.9, 4.7, 5 verses 1 and 4, and 18. The leading emphasis in these passages is upon the fact that there is an invariable concomitance or coordination of regeneration and other fruits of grace. In 2.29 it is the concomitance, togetherness, of the divine begetting and doing righteousness. In 3.9 of the divine begetting on the one hand and not doing sin and incapacity to sin on the other. In 4.7 of the divine begetting and love. In 5.1 of the divine beginning and believing that Jesus is the Christ. In 5.4, of the divine beginning and overcoming the world. In 5.18, of divine beginning and not sinning, and immunity to the touch of the evil one. As we shall see later, this is a very significant emphasis and warns us against any view of regeneration which abstracts it from the other elements of the application of redemption. 
In most of these passages, all that is expressly stated is this truth of the invariable concomitance of regeneration and these other blessings of grace. But in 3.9 we are expressly informed of something else, namely, the relation which regeneration sustains to the other particular graces mentioned in that text. Every one who is begotten of God does not do sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is begotten of God. Not only is it stated that the person who is born again does not do sin, but we are also informed of the reason why he does not sin. He does not sin because God's seed abides in him. Now this abiding seed alludes clearly to the divine impartation which took place in the divine beginning. It is this divine beginning with its abiding consequence that is the cause of not doing sin. Hence regeneration is logically and causally prior to the not doing sin. And again John tells us that he cannot sin because he is begotten of God an express statement to the effect that regeneration is the cause why this person cannot sin. So the reason why a person cannot sin is that that person is regenerated. The order cannot be reversed. In this verse, therefore, we are informed that regeneration is the source and explanation of the breach with sin which is characteristic of every regenerate person. We have found thus in 1 John 3.9 a principle which must apply to the other text cited in this epistle even though the principle is not expressly mentioned in these other texts. The inference is confirmed when we compare 3.9 with 5.18. The latter reads, We know that everyone who is begotten of God does not sin, but he who has been begotten of God keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him. The thought here is very closely similar to that in 3.9. In fact, it is in part identical with a slight variation of terms. If what we have found to be true in 3.9 applies to what is taught in 3.9, it must also apply to what is taught in 5.18. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.